Welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve Thomas, manager of our Grayson branch, and on today's episode, we welcome Dr. Scott Williamson, author of The Narrative Life, The Moral and Religious Thought of Frederick Douglass. In this episode, Dr. Williamson is joined in conversation with Ron Gauthier, the library's community partnerships manager for our youth services department. Take it away, Ron. Scott C. Williamson is the Robert H. Walker Professor of Theological Ethics at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, where he has taught since 1997. Born in the Bronx, he studied American history at Bates College. After Bates, Scott moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where he studied at Yale Divinity School and and the Department of Religious Studies, Yale Graduate School. While working on his doctorate, Scott had the honor of studying slave narratives under historian Joan Blassingame. Professor Blassingame, author of The Slave Community, Plantation Life in the Antebellum South, dedicated his last 20 years of his life to editing the papers of Frederick Douglass. Blassingame co-directed Scott's dissertation on Frederick Douglass, which was published by Mercer University Press in 2002. More recently, Mercer University Press invited Scott to write the introduction to their reprint of Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Scott's areas of interest include 19th century African-American moral and religious thought and restorative justice, the theme of social justice figures prominently in his work. When he is not teaching, Scott has served the Louisville Metro community in a variety of ways. He is a big brother, volunteer firefighter, court-appointed special advocate, and human relations commissioner for Metro government. Scott has also served on the Ethics Committee of the Home of the Innocents as a facilitator for Restorative Justice Louisville. Scott and his wife, Anna Maria, have two daughters, Ella Grace and Maya Elizabeth. Dr. Williamson, we're so delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you, Ron. The honor is mine. And it will be a pleasure for you to talk to us about this incredible book. So let me ask you, You know, um, Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison had a great relationship. And when I think about spiritual and religious bringings, um, in 1838, Frederick Douglass, I think, was in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And that's when he first heard William Lloyd Garrison, uh, a very well-known abolitionist and author of uh, a popular anti-slavery newspaper. So Douglas saw him and thought that this would be the person who could mold him, mentor him. So they built a strong relationship and then suddenly it just went asunder. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I I don't want to give everything that you wrote in your book, but tell us about that relationship. It's great beginning and then suddenly um, it being ripped asunder. Absolutely. So one of the things that uh, Douglas tells us, and he tells us mostly in his second narrative, um, my bondage, my freedom. He says that when he was a lecturer uh, for William Lloyd Garrison, American Anti-Slavery Society, that mostly what they wanted to do was to introduce him as a brand new fact, almost the living embodiment of slavery. Douglas grew tired of that role. 
And he would give advice to them. They were trying to persuade white northerners to become abolitionists. So when Douglas would go on the lecture circuit, they would tell him, you know, better to have a little bit of the plantation in your dialect, right? To sound like he was a slave because, Ron, to northern white audiences, they thought that Douglas had never been a slave. He would give lectures where he would go into churches and as he was heading to the lectern of the podium, he would hear, oh, I bet he's never been a slave. He's never been south of the Mason and Dixon line. So part of what Douglas wanted to do was to tell his story and not just serve the role of relating his experiences in slavery so that the Garrisonians could then launch into their material uh, about how wrong slavery was. That's the beginning of a tension between Douglas and Garrison. When Douglas decided he wanted to tell his own story, he wanted to say the words that he thought fit to say and not merely serve the role of <clears throat> being an illustration for the abolitionist principles of William Lloyd Garrison. So uh, between 1841 and 1845, Douglas worked as a lecturer, as an agent, uh, as an abolitionist. And in 1845, he published his narrative. Garrison was overjoyed uh, and actually had excerpts from the narrative in The Liberator. Then Douglas decided uh, that he wanted to publish his own newspaper, The North Star, funded by abolitionists from Great Britain. And there began the real rift in their relationship because Garrison felt that this was an unnecessary kind of competition. Garrison had the Liberator, Douglas now had the North Star, and Garrison felt that they were becoming uh, competitors as opposed to allies. <laughs> Douglas tried to honor Garrison's market for the Liberator by moving to Rochester, New York, also a hotbed of abolition. So Douglas said, I'll go upstate New York. I'll publish the North Star there. Uh, but that began the real fallout between Garrison and Douglas, because when Douglas began to publish the North Star, he also began to express that he didn't agree with Garrison about everything. So, for example, Garrison's motto was no union with slaveholders, uh, that the Constitution, the fundamental documents of the nation were corrupt and corrupted by slaveholding power. Douglas disagreed, and he thought that it was important to use political means to end slavery, to vote. So Douglas broke from Garrison over that no union with slaveholders by endorsing a kind of political abolition where Garrison was dependent upon moral suasion and moral suasion alone. Douglas said moral suasion is good, but it's insufficient. It's also important to vote, to use political means. So as Douglas began to publish what he wanted to say, and that entailed breaking away from some of Garrison's uh, uh, framework, some of his uh, principles, the two really got into some tension. 
and it became heated and it became personal. And I mean, they were there was some real fire between Douglas and Garrison. Now, fortunately, the story doesn't end there. And uh, years, decades later, actually, uh, 1860s after the Civil War, after Garrison ended the run of uh, the uh, the Liberator, Douglas and Garrison became friends once again and rekindled some of the old memories they had had. So it it, it works out that the two uh, did have a falling out and a falling out that lasted for decades, but the story doesn't end there. And before uh, these men died, they once again became friends. Right. And I understand that uh, at Douglas's funeral, uh, William Lloyd Garrison's son actually <laughs> actually spoke at the funeral. And at uh, William Lloyd Garrison's funeral, Frederick Douglass actually spoke. So maybe Absolutely. that was a time where you think they buried the hatchet at that point? Absolutely. No question about it. Uh, and, and because ultimately they were both on the same side. They were both fighting for abolition. But it's just that as Douglas claimed his own authenticity, his own authentic voice, he chose a different way to get to that goal than Garrison did. So they had some different means to an end that they both wanted to share. And, and, and that caused a lot of a lot of tension that became very personal. But it, but it didn't last. And I think at the end, as you mentioned, Ron, we see the real regard for each other and the legacy and the work that they had done uh, became really important to the world. Wow. So Douglas once said, we inherit and edit a moral world. The way he responded to these moral and religious thoughts served as like a crucible of his ideas. Can you comment on how this impacted Douglas's life? So the idea of inheriting a moral world <clears throat> is rooted for Douglas ultimately in uh, Christianity, by which I mean to say Douglas believed in natural law. Uh, that of the different types of law, there's divine law, there's human law, and natural law uh, refers to a kind of work that God does in nature. The, the best way that I can describe it, and I do this with students, if you've ever seen those shows, uh, forensic shows, police shows where they're trying to track down a criminal and they do that through DNA, Natural law is like God's DNA in the fabric of the world. And because Douglas believed in natural law, he believed that we've all inherited uh, this society in which God has already said no to slavery, right? So God's DNA is in liberty, is in freedom, uh, is in equality. Uh, and that those who don't get that are misrepresenting, misunderstanding God's purpose. But Douglas, for all of his life, remained optimistic that the racial divide between blacks and whites would not be eternal, would not last forever because of natural law, because we were going to eventually live into what God had already established uh, for the world, but we we just hadn't gotten there. So for Douglas, we all inherit a kind of moral order 
And it's not because we as individuals are moral people. It really is ultimately because God has acted and acted in creating a world that because of our sinfulness, we've fallen away from. But that is where Douglas grounds this moral order and the source of his optimism that racism would not last forever. We'd overcome it. I think it's amazing to think, too, that some people uh, did not see him as a true slave that maybe exaggerated a bit. And so when I think of that era, I think of the large number of slave narratives that were being published. You had uh, Harry Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a State Slave Girl, the very first one written by an African-American woman. William Wells Brown, of course, uh, Escape from Slavery, and so many others. And then you had the... uh, the William, the William Craft story of how they were able to escape. William and Ellen Craft, really powerful. What would you say are the similarities between those and Douglas, and where does where does it all differ? So the the ones that you've mentioned uh, are stories that come generally from the same period of time in which Douglas was writing. Uh, so there are a lot of fugitive narratives uh, that were part of of the slave narrative tradition. Uh, there was an earlier period of slave narratives before the fugitive slave narratives, like the one Douglas wrote and the other folks that you've mentioned. In the earlier period, uh, there were slaves who really wrote about their own uh, individual experience, but they did not address slavery as an institution. These were mostly spiritual narratives in which a particular slave who was Christian would talk about all the injustice he experienced because of slavery. And the appeal was to other Christians uh, to to resist slavery. But it was not a broadside against the institution of slavery. And that's from like 1760 through roughly 1807, 1808, uh, somewhere around there. The later slave narratives say, in the antebellum period from roughly 1831 to the end of the Civil War, when Douglas was writing, those were different. These were fugitives who really launched a kind of broadside against the institution of slavery. They were similar in that way, uh, that what what they were doing was not a kind of spiritual narrative about their own individual uh, injustices because of slavery. They really were representing themselves as being typical of all slaves. That's one of the things Douglas was trying to do in his narrative that a lot of readers don't catch the kind of meaning in between the lines. Douglas was trying to say that his experience was typical of slave experiences, not just Uh, his own hardships, but the hardships of slaves generally. And uh, whether it was Solomon Northup or the other slaves who wrote narratives, they were doing something there that was very similar. There was a broadside against the institution of slavery, and there was a kind of appeal primarily to white Northerners to become abolitionists uh, because slavery was unjust wherever you found it. And and not just unjust to one particular slave here or there. It was unjust as as an institution, uh, and and that is a kind of uh, a kind of commonality. 
Now, one of the ways in which Douglas differs or what makes his work distinctive is really uh, the way in which he uses language. Douglas really was, uh, I call him a wordsmith. He was somebody who had a phenomenal uh, mastery of the English language. And it's his use of language uh, to try to create some kind of feeling of compassion or stoke the empathy of Northern white readers. It's in his ability to do that that Douglas distinguishes himself. Uh, his, his use of language is phenomenal. And also the, the fundamental story of how he connected literacy to freedom is also a powerful and uniquely Douglas type of story. Uh, and when I, when I teach Douglas at my school, Ron, students will have a kind of whitewashed version of the story where Douglas, in effect, says, you know, um, learn how to read and you will free yourself. And that's, that's not exactly right, because for Douglas, literacy was connected to defiance. It's kind of learn to be literate so that you can defy oppressive structures like institutional slavery. Uh, and that kind of uh, use of language and, and that kind of uh, literary trope, Douglas distinguishes himself and makes his narrative really one that is exceptional uh, and, and that is distinctive. And he was—he uh, actually did three versions of it. <laughs> the, the first one I would know would have three different versions of his own autobiography. So, over that era, talk about that a bit. How did that? How did they differ each different edition? So, uh, one of the things that Douglas thought was important was for him to tell his story in his own words uh, and to continue the story, so that after the first narrative written when he was about 27 years old, um, he, he kind of gets out the story of how it is he uh, transitioned, how he moved from being a slave born on the Eastern Shore to being an abolitionist employed by William Lloyd Garrison. In the second one, My Bondage and My Freedom, 10 years later, 1855, he continues the story. But now he really is... Uh, expressing more of his authentic beliefs separated from Garrison. And Douglas thought it was important to share his story in part because as a kind of representative of slaves, Douglas wanted readers to see in his story the capacities of all slaves, not just Frederick Douglass. So it was important to continue the story to keep alive, this is what slaves are capable of if you do away with the institution of slavery. If you end the kind of oppression of Black people, they're capable of the same things that I've done. And in the, in the third story, I mean, who better in the third narrative, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, uh, 1881, who better, right, to, to bring his story home than Frederick Douglass. So in, in part, 
the three narratives were really a way for Douglas to continue a story, not just about himself personally, but about the hopes and possibilities of all people who had been enslaved and who had overcome slavery. So the representative nature of his autobiography was really important to Douglas. Now, there's another uh, reason, Ron, I think that's important. Douglas's first narrative uh, sold like hotcakes in our current terminology. You'd say it, it went viral. Uh, there were, it was republished eight or nine different times and thousands and thousands of copies sold. So part of the reason Douglas would go back to publishing a narrative was there was a kind of financial right, gain from doing this as well. This was a father, a husband, father, um, a, a newspaper editor, and he was under a constant financial strain. So part of this after the first narrative was, hey, there, this may be a way to get my ideas out there, uh, but also it may connect with readers in a way that helps me to, to earn money. As it turns out, the second autobiography was not as well received, did not sell as well. For Douglas scholars, the second narrative is very important because Douglas really discloses his, uh, his thoughts, his beliefs uh, in ways that differ from Garrison and other abolitionists, but it didn't sell as well. And then the third uh, autobiography sold very poorly. So it, it, over the course of, of time, from 1845 with the first narrative to 1881 and the third narrative, the public, the reading public, right, lost interest uh, in the story. Not that they lost interest in Douglas. He still was a lecturer. Uh, he still had his name out there. He was the most photographed person in the 19th century. Nobody was more photographed than Frederick Douglass. And for Douglas, this was all a part of his abolitionist work and his work for civil rights. He felt that in addition to his words, uh, to his narratives, to his lectures, that his photograph, his image was important to counter the derogatory ways in which Black people were portrayed. They were portrayed as buffoons, as Uncle Tom's, as uh, mammies, as uh, alligator bait. And if you look at any of Douglas's images, he is serious. Uh, whether he's looking directly at the camera or looking off, right? he is somebody you have to take seriously. And that was by design, that his image would reflect what Black people were really like uh, to counter the derogatory caricatures that were used to demean Black people and keep them oppressed. Yes. And throughout his works, you see that he uh, really pushed to, to prove that an ex-slave could be brilliant and intelligent and educated. So when he published the, uh, the North Star in Rochester in 1847, and kind of sort of pulled away from the Liberator being the only uh, journal that he could write for. So could you talk a bit about that split when he started the North Star? And it gets into a lot of what you're saying. 
proving to people that black people can be a lot more than the stereotypes that were just uh, really proliferated everywhere at that time. Could you talk about the North Star a bit? Absolutely. So I, I think several things are important about the North Star. One is a demonstration that black people can edit a paper, can run a paper. That was important to Douglas because it's a demonstration of, of not just intellect, but also of a kind of uh, capacity in business, right, to keep it afloat. And he was constantly uh, facing financial hardships. He received a lot of support from white benefactors, from abolitionist friends in Great Britain who helped him to keep the paper afloat. Uh, so, so that's one of the things. It's a demonstration of intelligence, but also of business prowess. But more than that, the North Star enabled Douglas to, uh, to show his thinking about a range of issues. He wasn't limited to just talking about slavery. He talked about politics, right? What was going on in different parts of the world, the Spanish-American War, he gave his thoughts about that. So he's demonstrating that Black people not just himself, but as a representative of Black people, that we thought about any number of things, just like white people did. Uh, and that was important to Douglas, to share his thinking, his, his uh, evolution on issues. Uh, and, and the paper put him in everything. All the issues that were major issues of the day, Douglas could reflect on. So that was very important to him. Uh, the, there was a tragedy, I believe it was in the 1870s, uh, when his house in Rochester burned down. And uh, part of the loss was not just this home, but he had every single issue of his papers, of the North Star and the papers that, that followed, and they were lost in the fire. So the only complete collection uh, of all of his of his papers and his work was lost in that. And that was a, a, a huge personal loss for Douglas, but also, I think, a loss for all of us. It's amazing that we still have uh, as many copies of the North Star over the years it was published in, in Douglas's papers. Corda uh, in, the, in the late 1870s, Douglas actually purchased a controlling interest in the new era of paper. Uh, and, and he actually, Ron, managed to buy it outright, changed the name to the new national era, and he gave that to his sons, uh, Lewis and Frederick, to, to manage and to run. So he was trying to help his two of his sons, two of his children, right, to be able to, uh, to, to run a paper and and unfortunately, within two years, it became insolvent. The paper failed. Douglas lost somewhere between eight to $10,000 on that. So he was, he was trying. One of the things we see with Douglas and publishing is not just personal gain, personal expression, but later on that this could be a vehicle, publishing, that would help not just his sons, but other Black people. And he invested and he lost heavily. Uh, but but that, the, the drive to speak, to use language, right, uh, in the written form was one that was dear to Douglas's heart uh, and to the end of his life. 
he was instrumental in sharing his voice, not just in lectures, but also the written word, the use of language that he began to learn when Sophia Auld taught him the alphabet and how to spell three and four letter words. The lessons he learned there about how literacy and defiance could lead to freedom was something he carried every time he published. And when he tried to give the new national era to his children, to his sons, there were lessons there uh, about using language and defiance, defying stereotypes, defying racist law uh, that, that were near and dear to Douglas's heart. So slave populations back then were seemingly fascinated with biblical stories containing, let's say, parallels to their own lives and created spirituals that really retold narratives about biblical figures like David and Moses. So many slaves even were given names that were parallel to biblical figures. What was Douglas' position on biblical stories as they related to, let's say, the dehumanizing aspects of slavery? So uh, Douglas was somebody who had a keen read of religion in his era. So at the end of the narrative, 1845, in the appendix, there's a section on religion. And Douglas thought that the religion of the South was an apostasy, uh, that this was not what he called pure religion or true religion. This was not what God intended. So the stories that were told in the Southern church, Douglas thought they, they may have been inspired by the Bible, may come from the Bible, but they are being used in a way that goes against what God intended. So he was uh, somebody who didn't necessarily reflect on individual stories from the Bible and whether they were true, helpful he really looked at how the Bible was being interpreted in the South as opposed to the North, and that the interpretation, the use of the Bible to support a political system of slavery, that that uh, was an apostasy, that went against God. So he had a, a very early sense of what we might call today hermeneutics. How do you interpret scripture? And what Douglas found was that the interpretation of the Bible uh, in, the, in the South, in the slaveholding South, was one that was um, not just in support of the slave system, but really was an instrument of the slave system. And if that apostasy was overcome, if the, if the pure and peaceful gospel from above, as he called it, were really truly taught, Slavery would end tomorrow, but he'd been corrupted. So that's where when Douglas writes about religion, that's where he tends to focus on what I would call a kind of hermeneutics, a way in which Bible is interpreted to glean meaning from it. And Douglas also Douglas is sort of a fashion, a really nuanced use of scripture to defeat pro-slavery arguments. Now his commitment to equality of blacks and whites carried over to his unwillingness to critique both white churches and black churches for their moral lassitude. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? So one of the things we see uh, in, in Douglas is that 
um, he was critical of white churches that refused to even consider abolition. He was equally critical of black churches that refused to have an abolitionist come and speak because they were afraid of the social and political consequences. As a matter of fact, Douglas uh, got up and left one black church uh, because they decided that they would not invite an abolitionist to speak. And that was out of fear of the repercussions, what they would face if they did that. So, so Douglas was really committed uh, to, a, to a kind of um, uh, speaking of the truth and to have abolitionists say, right, what was really uh, happening and what was really true. And he was critical of churches, black and white, when they refused to tell the truth because they were afraid of the consequences. Uh, so that's one of the one of the kind of legacies of Frederick Douglass is that he did not shy away from being critical of black churches that also refused to support uh, abolition or who supported it but did not do so publicly because they were concerned about what the consequences might be. Douglas was somebody who uh, always put himself out in that way of telling the truth, even when he faced hostile mobs, even when he was beaten for that. There was a time when he thought he would become an AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church minister. Uh, And this is before Garrison and before he found that avenue for telling the truth. Uh, And when he was um, speaking for the church, Douglas was one who consistently preached a kind of abolitionist text uh, and refused to be associated in a way that would either condone or um, lend support to what he thought of as a racist slaveholding church. So when I think of Douglas and I think of his relationship with two really prominent men, two presidents, <laughs> President Abraham Lincoln and then President Andrew Johnson. So he has this relationship with Lincoln. You know, he's proud to see what's happening during the Civil War. African-American soldiers are fighting uh, to help for freedom. You see the end of the Civil War. You see some great uh, constitutional amendments passing. So he shared that during Lincoln's presidency, he met Johnson. He said Johnson gave him this cold, hostile stare when he said he would never forget. So tell me, what was it like for Douglas after Lincoln's assassination? Then you got the president suddenly of Andrew Johnson and the country just changes overnight. The whole Reconstruction era plan is sort of going backwards. Talk about that a bit for us. Absolutely. So 1875, Douglas tells Republicans uh, that the the nation is losing its resolve for Reconstruction. It's going backwards. That was one of his fears. One of the reasons why Douglas fought so hard for Blacks to be enfranchised was a real fear that slavery could come back again if Blacks didn't have the right to vote. So um, Douglas, 1875, is telling the country uh, we're slipping 
on Reconstruction were slipping on the fulfillment of promises for liberty that we've made to all Americans, particularly those who were enslaved. 1876, Douglas delivers the main address at the, uh, the Freedmen's Memorial uh, in Washington, D.C., in honor of Abraham Lincoln. The Freedmen's Memorial was really significant because the money raised to, to create this work of art was coming from those who had been enslaved and those who, who had been freed from slavery. It was Black folks who raised the money for this Freedmen's Memorial uh, dedicated to Abraham Lincoln. Frederick Douglass delivers a speech in Washington, D.C. that, Ron, no African-American had delivered to as large an audience until Barack Obama. So the, the audience had Supreme Court justices and had other uh, folks in Congress that had all the uh, members of government. Uh, it was a huge, huge audience. And what Douglas says about Lincoln is brutally honest. He had a great deal of respect for Abraham Lincoln. But what he says is that Abraham Lincoln was your president, right? The whites in the audience. He was your man. We were at best, his stepchildren, right? That, that Lincoln was not somebody who embraced, right, uh, Black equality. He was somebody who really was forced into a position where it was important for Blacks to fight in the Civil War. Douglas finds a way to tell the truth about Lincoln and still say, but it's, it's right and he is worthy of this honor because he did, right, issue a proclamation that freed the slaves. So Douglas saw Lincoln uh, evolving, moving from great reluctance to helping end slavery to a position where he saw the importance of it, he saw the importance eventually of paying Black officers the wages that white officers received, and yet been there initially, but Lincoln evolved, and Douglas says in front of the nation, uh, you know, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't our man at first, but it is right that we honor him uh, because he did free the slaves. So uh, in part, Douglas is occupying a position where he's telling the truth about Abraham Lincoln but he's also honoring him for the greatness of his spirit. Because Douglas remembered it was Lincoln who had said uh, when he was in meetings and Frederick Douglas showed up, wait a minute, stop, invite him in. This is my friend Douglas. Have you met my friend Douglas? And to Frederick Douglas, that was, that was really important. It showed something about the spirit of the man that he never forgot that it was important to him to honor that this is who Abraham Lincoln really was. Now, with Johnson, it was just the opposite, right? In terms of who Johnson really was, it was somebody who was cold and distant and really had no warmth or affection, not just for Frederick Douglass, but for Black people. As a matter of fact, when Douglass was offered a kind of token position by the Johnson administration, he turned it down. He didn't want to be seen as supporting in any way this administration because he thought 
that it was taking the nation away from the fulfillment of its promises in reconstruction. And he was really concerned about that. So very different estimates uh, of those precedents. Wow. I can imagine the 1870s might have been the most trying times for him. You got this, this incredible country uh, going through change. You got African-American congressmen elected into office in these highest positions. For the first time in American history, he makes his amazing speech in 1876. And then you've got the election of Rutherford B. Hayes, the, uh, yes. the compromise and the end of Reconstruction. So that had to be very difficult to see such height and then such regression. Could you talk a bit about that experience? Absolutely. And the way that I'll do that, Douglas had a kind of um, experience for the trials he would face in the 1870s. And the experience came from uh, the antebellum period, primarily the 1850s, with the passage of legislation that limited the, 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 the ability of Blacks to maneuver, whether it was uh, the Fugitive Slave Act or whether it was uh, political compromise for the extension of, of slavery, Douglas had experienced those setbacks. And just prior to the Civil War, he said in his writings that, you know, it was as if abolition and the abolitionists caused had done everything that it could possibly do, and it failed. And it seemed like only God could end slavery. So just before this, this, the onset of civil war, Douglas felt that the abolitionist cause, and particularly moral suasion, had really failed. One of the illustrations he gives is uh, for Northern white audiences who did attend abolitionist meetings, Douglas said it was this, as if they were at a night at the theater that they would come and they would be moved by the testimony of slaves, uh, and then they would leave and do absolutely nothing to end slavery, right? And, and that was so distressing to Douglas that when there were the first signs that warfare was coming, Douglas was among the many Americans who embraced the coming warfare as an indication of God's involvement uh, that this was God acting in a way. Now, those who favored slavery said it was God acting to maintain slavery. But for Douglas, he said it was God doing something that the abolitionist movement could not do. God intervening to end slavery. So by the time the 1870s come, uh, here Douglas feels that what the nation is going through is really the repeal of Reconstruction, moving away from that promise. So he had this, this kind of disappointment, but he also had developed a kind of um, um, a kind of hope, if hope is thought of as a discipline, right? Because he had been there before. He had been there in the 1850s uh, and saw that, you know, slavery still ended, though it appeared uh, that, that it, it might not. And he had that same kind of uh, optimism, even in the 1870s, that regardless the, the, the darkness of the moment, right, that natural law would still prevail and that justice for blacks and for whites would still prevail and that we would be one nation. He maintains that 
even in the 1870s, uh, when when he is um, when he is feeling that Reconstruction is slipping away, Rutherford behaves appoints him uh, to be recorder of deeds and minister to Haiti, and uh, he embraces these government roles, even though Douglas knows that they have title but not much power. And he embraces the government roles largely because he thinks it's an end. It's a way that if he can become established, uh, like clearly being U.S. Marshal, that he can open a door for other Black people to follow, not just that particular role as, say, U.S. Marshal, for example, but to follow in terms of government jobs that had a significant salary. Uh, so that was also important to Douglas toward the end of his life to open these doors in the government. Uh, and he did that even though he knew the positions did, had very little power. Uh, U.S. Marshall probably had the most power of the positions that he had. There was title, but there was not much else. But Douglas still, at the end of his life, saw that as an avenue to begin to help other Black people to move into positions of authority. Awesome. So when I think about uh, his religious and moral thoughts and uh, read so much in your book, which is a, a fascinating read, by the way, so thank you so, for writing and publishing that. I think That's about his famous speech on the 4th of July. So there's no denying how he felt and what he thought. That's probably one of the best primary sources that's out there. Absolutely. In the world. 1852, Ron, incredible. What's incredible if you can imagine, if we were there, what we would have heard, perhaps for the first 20 minutes or so of this speech, Douglas right, really proclaims the, the significance of the founding fathers in setting up right, this, this republic, this land of freedom and liberty, and how important that was, how significant that was, how great they were. right? So this is Frederick Douglass. And after maybe 20 minutes or so of this speech, in an instant, he flips it. And he says, so you must tell me why you have invited me here today, right? Why have you invited the slave, to, uh, the fugitive, to speak about, right, the importance of this day of liberty and freedom that is denied to us? It is the most masterful um, expression of the hypocrisy uh, of this republic that, that I've read. Douglas was simply masterful in laying out the hypocrisy, the potential greatness of this republic. And then there's slavery, which undermined every single thing, which was a violation of all of the important principles that the founders gave us. Uh, so that expression was simply phenomenal. And I've not read anything in the literary corpus which addresses the hypocrisy as clearly, as succinctly, or as powerfully as that 1852 speech. It was definitely a powerful speech. And again, I'm going to get back to your book because, again, it's just really well done. Uh, Could you share with everyone title of your book, Why You Decided to Write About the Religious and Moral Thoughts of Frederick Douglass, which, by the way, was great 
because the authors have written many books out there about Frederick Douglass. And this is the first one I read where you focus right on that aspect of his life, which was great. So the, the narrative life, which Mercer University Press published in 2002, uh, is the one in which I try to look at the foundations, the antecedents of Douglass's moral and religious thought. It's called the narrative life because I focus on his story and the story that he tells us in his narrative. And I uh, understand that story in terms of what I call episodes and what he learned from those episodes. So the very beginning of his life, uh, is one in which he spends, he's raised by his grandmother the first five years of his life. And that was an important time for him. He's allowed to be a child. And my point is that those early lessons are not lost but they become kind of a filter according to which he's able to uh, evaluate the slave system and evaluate what the nation is like. So, for example, he's raised by his grandmother. When he's about five years old, she takes him to the big house and she leaves him. Douglas experienced abandonment. Uh, and, and that abandonment as a five-year-old was significant for him. In part, as he grows older, he sees that that abandonment is normative. That's what happens to slave children. They're allowed to run around and be kids until they're old enough to work in the field. And at that point, they're taken to the big house. And just like that, their role changes, expectations change. Uh, and, and then, so from that abandonment, uh, he sees you know, a public display of a slave being whipped for disobeying the master. And of course, imagine a child seeing this, he's terrified. So as an adult, Douglas is able to look back and say, this is what slavery is, right? It's this abandonment, it's this terror. Uh, so the, his experiences as a child, these episodes provide a kind of framework and I think give his narrative so much power and punch uh, because of its pathos, because of its ability to use language in a way that anyone, not just in this time period, but even today, can really feel the horror of those moments, uh, but also the great strength and dignity and grace of the slaves. Douglas is never closer, right, to, to the, the slave community than when he writes about the power of the slave songs and their singings, right? When slaves sing, Douglas knew that it was not what whites reported. They thought that slaves sang because they were happy. So if you see them out in the field and they're singing, it's because they're happy doing their labor. And Douglas said, no, nah, there's, there's, there's nothing further from the truth. But he's closest to the slave community because he can't find the words, right? He can't find the language to express the meaning and the power of those slave songs, right? So here, Douglas had really become not just well-known, uh, but significant because of his use of language, the language of whites. But when thinking about those slave songs, he felt that there were no words, that language failed, right? 
to to convey the power of those songs. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the ways in which I kind of go back to these episodes, these experiences when he was young, before he left slavery. And in effect to say, he knew a lot before he met William Lloyd Garrison, right? He had experienced a lot before he became an abolitionist. He had learned a lot and he was able to express quite a bit of who he was. So that's what I'm trying to do in a narrative life. Uh, and, uh, and more recently in my introduction to Mercer University Press's re-release of Douglas's first narrative, I tried to give some sense of putting Douglas in a context so that readers can get a, a deeper understanding of what was behind the words that he uses. Awesome. We've got about maybe two minutes and I've got one question of someone's asking here in the chat. Are you working on another book about Douglas or another topic? Thank you for the question. And what I would like to do and what I'm working on now is introductions to the Douglas narratives. So Mercer just published uh, last year my introduction to Douglas's first autobiography, Narrative Life. I'm working on an introduction to my Bonnage and My Freedom, Douglas's second autobiography. My plan is to write an introduction to the third one, uh, Life of Frederick Douglas, Life and Times, after that. So I'm working on introductions uh, because I found that what I enjoy most is not necessarily writing for other scholars. I like writing for readers who do not have a PhD or readers who just uh, want to know what's going on uh, with a Frederick Douglass. So I found that I, I like writing introductions and I'm gonna continue to do that uh, until I find another avenue that I think is important to write about. So I introduce Douglass's words and try to give the reader some context for understanding Douglass. Here's another quick question from someone. Is that a Frederick Douglass character you have displayed behind you? <laughs> so I was hoping to be able to join you from my office. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. We have an ice storm, so I had to work from home. And yes, what you see behind me is a, a Frederick Douglass um, doll uh, right next to uh, the book that the re-release of Douglas's narrative uh, by Mercer University Press. That's exactly what I have behind. Okay, okay so amazing talk, Dr. Scott. That's saying thank you very much. Very oh, informative. My, it was absolutely fantastic. It, it's my pleasure. I really have enjoyed being here. So thanks so much for coming in. And everyone, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library. Thanks again to Dr. Scott Williamson and Ron Gautier for their enlightening conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting your Gwinnett County Public Library.